Welcome to the 12 Days of Edition Wars, featuring 2nd Edition AD&D Players and DMs Options books. In this marathon series, we are taking a close look at a set of special books that are often considered D&D 2.5. On the 7th Day of Edition Wars, my DM gave to me 7 Spells of Casting, Spells and Magic, Part 1. So in this book, um, we get a lot of different ways of approaching spellcasting and magic and how to create stories about magic and the fantastical. And I mean, I I think I've talked before about just how small the typeface gets between different books in this series. Mm -hmm. And this book is the real offender. The, The typeface is very small. The pages are very cramped. Um, it's lucky for me, anyway, that when I got this book, I was not 38. <laughs> Call it what yeah. it is. My, my eyes weren't great then, but they uh, they have not improved. Um, it's it, For me, it's very evocative of the third edition books because those things were so hard for me to read. Tiny, tiny font. And in that case, the background was that sort of brownish parchment paper color with lines on it meant to look like a you know a notebook or whatever uh and so different depths of brown at different places sometimes it was white background sometimes it was more brown and it was so hard to read and this is very much like that except it has a pure white background but oh everything is so crammed in and there's the art compared to i feel like compared to the other books that we've looked at in this series there's not as much of it so, yeah, it's it's much art lighter, um, though there's still a, a pretty fair amount. Sure, but I um, just mean in terms of that means that there are now places where you have you know four or five pages in a row with maybe one half page art piece amongst. Them. Yeah, for sure. Uh, now, even this is probably not my high water mark for uh, just cramped illegible text in. A second edition book, that that award that that uh, there is no prize for this award situation goes to uh, the complete Necromancer's Handbook. Uh, I don't know if you recall it, but it was the one. It's, it's the one class book that is um, a, a blue cover uh, because they're not really sure this book is for PCs. There's some PC content in there, but. Yeah, it's kind yes. of it's a, it's in the vein uh, of sages and specialists, right? Which is also a blue cover, but you know, it's really for right. the it's really for uh, the DM. But most of those blue covers were were, were fairly generously font sized, mm-hmm. and so on. Complete Necromancers is a, a real outlier. <laughs> it is teeny tiny font. They had a a page count and a word count, and those things did not correlate <laughs> to each other well. Yeah. I'll tell you. Um, now, the, maybe the, the most famous uh, case of just an illegible book in all of uh, tabletop gaming goes to the legendary Secret of Zeron, uh, where something went horribly awry with the printer, but having gone awry, there was no money to fix it. Um, and so it is uh, black text on a gray page with uh, 
silver or gray uh, patterning on the page. And there is just no hope in this book. Like uh, my friend Colin for tribality wrote a couple of uh, articles about the secret of Zaran um, having discovered that the secret was, I don't know, find some other way to read it than a printed <laughs> book. Um, and he he's very into the game and what it's offering. It just was a total flop because no one could read the book. Yeah, that's too bad. And there was no way to correct it. Anyway, um, back to the book at hand. We, we would certainly be never known to digress at length. Uh, uh, never. No. Not, not at any time before. This is so odd. Um, <laughs> so... The the first chapter of this book is it, it it's interesting that they you know bother to cover it to be honest with you. Uh, there's a discussion like, like sure how to integrate this book into your campaign is something we we saw extensively in uh, combat and tactics right that's that's not a surprise. Um, a little more surprising is the section on the role of magic in the campaign and sort of a discussion of all the different. Um, the levers you can pull when presenting magic as a DM um, t- talks about scarcity, mystery, uh, power, cost, worldview, all of these things, and uh, I think it's always interesting when D and D makes any suggestions that uh, deviate from its own purported baseline. Uh, I mean, I'm always here for D&D making an effort to support different kinds of stories than um, whatever you might see its core story as being. But in part, this is me uh, kicking against a bunch of Twitter threads that have gotten under my skin lately. So there you go. The thing that's interesting to me, this is a very, relatively speaking, long um, introduction chapter. But it actually talks about some things that that possibly at this point in time, people hadn't really actually addressed in very much depth. Um, Or maybe I should say it like this, that had not been written in an official Dungeons & Dragons book and discussed with very much depth. You know, things like... um, talking about the power level of magic and talking about scarcity and what that does to a setting and talking about, you know, what the actual worldview would be uh, in a setting. You know, if you, if you change the idea of how the, how the normal person in a setting, a commoner in a setting thinks about magic, right? Is it rare? Is it common? Does everybody have a little bit of it? Does no one have access to it? All those sorts of things. You know, these are things that players have been talking about for a long time, because of course, you know, up until this point, there was always this huge disparity. In fact, during this, there was a huge disparity between what a fighter can do and what a, you know, what a wizard could do or what a magic user could do, of course, right? Right, the the famous linear fighter quadratic wizard. Right, exactly, and so so you you get that conversation happening a lot, but that was set in a different context, right? This is now this is now talking about well, what what if you think about it just in terms of the setting itself? Forget about the power level of individual PCs compared to each other, even though they're different classes, and think about 
what's happening in the world as a setting. What is the worldview? I think that's at least instructive. So while I have some not necessarily um, generous things to say about uh, this book in some cases, I guess my my most generous read of, of at least this first chapter is, you know, they're trying to open a conversation and maybe provide a different, uh, you know, a different a, a way to talk about it with a different point of view. And I respect that. I think it's it's maybe a good thing. Right. And um, I, I think that what the book is going to go on to give us is a lot of stuff that has uh, interesting inventive ideas, but uh, they all sort of – I think they're all going to lean toward uh, magic is rare and difficult rather than um, magic is fun and exciting. Right. Right. Well, because uh, I think the the ethos or the or the prevailing thought up until this point was that magic is fun and exciting and very very powerful, and so that's that's what brings up that problem of the of the linear fighter and quadratic wizard. That magic is so powerful and fun that you know it it's just way too powerful. So now we have to find a way to talk about it in different terms. Sure. I mean, good or bad, right? I'm not actually making a, a judgment yeah, about no, that. Yeah, no, I, I get you. Um, and so, you know, that that makes the book a lot harder to to engage with, and it's it's why they need a how to um, switch uh, adopt this in your campaign section. But it makes the book much harder to engage with if you are looking for uh, something with the same tone as uh, core second edition D and D. And just more more depth and nuance, uh, as opposed to, well, I want a, a a lower, scarier magic tone, which is what most of the uh, new content in this book is going to sell. Oh, uh, so you're you're saying that the book is actually almost a bait and switch, right? Uh, I, I think it's an outlier. The idea of it makes it seem like, oh, spells and magic. Here's new and and new and improved ways to integrate really cool magical uses into your game. When really, it's a here's how to limit magic use. Well, and you know, to, to be fair, um, there's a whole bunch of new spells in this book, and those spells work fine within the ordinary paradigm of second edition. And there's probably well, some of them have become really, really core familiar things, uh, thanks to uh, 3.0 and thereafter. And some have you know, stayed on the margins very much. Um, and we'll get into what some of those are, but probably not this episode because that's in the appendix. <laughs> um, but it is, I think, going to be interesting enough that our listeners are going to want to hear about it. Anyway, I think. I think we can probably launch into chapter one, Wizards, which uh, is very much a a deeper and more, I'm going to say thinly sliced version of the Skills and Powers Wizard. If you if you took this chapter and just put it directly into Skills and Powers, uh, it would only feel out of place in that it goes it digs so much deeper than. Uh, any other class other than priests are getting right mm-hmm. uh, with so, still more new types of um, new, new ways to specialize and then far more point by class abilities at the start of play. I mean, when we, we saw this in skills and powers, there was a, a roughly 
I don't know, normal number of options for the wizard compared to other classes and a roughly normal number of optional limitations. And that that time has passed. We, we are now leaping in headfirst uh, into uncharted water of many, many, many features. And it isn't that they aren't interesting. I don't mean that at all. Uh, it's just they, they are overwhelming. And as with any point by system, there's an enormous amount of pressure to find ex- exploits. Uh, this feels like it wants you to figure out how to exploit it. And, you know, a lot of the limitations are things that you can very consciously just turn into not being limitations. Um, for example, weapons restriction. Right. As a three-point restriction, uh, the wizard may never have proficiency in any weapon. Okay. You're a wizard. After about a third level, you didn't have a bunch of business using weapons anyway. Um, I, I would say fifth level at the absolute outside. Uh, after that point, like you just have no business using a staff or a dagger as a weapon rather than as a magical implement. Because it isn't locking you out of using staffs as magic items, uh, for example. As a five-point restriction, the wizard is not allowed to attempt to wield any weapon at all and may never try to injure another creature with a weapon. I guess I'm kind of assuming that something like a staff of fire is not injuring another creature with a weapon. Uh, But if you did... Yeah, I I guess it depends on how strictly you're using the term weapon, right? Right, and... Uh, and because you know weapons in the more modern editions only apply to non-magical non-silvered objects that you're using to directly damage another creature uh, but a magical right. weapon is a different thing right um yeah, absolutely um and then doing so renders all spell use impossible for the character for at least one full month well honestly by that point it's five free points like if you're gonna never, if you're gonna get the three point version, just go ahead and get the five point version. You're not gonna do this. You have decided you're not gonna do this. So what's the problem? And you know, I also have questions about. I mean, does your fist does 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 your fist count as a weapon? I mean, well, sure, because you know, if you it, you know, it was also very popular to you know have all of the party members captured and you know thrown in a dungeon and they have to escape or, you know, they don't have any equipment or, you know what I mean? So then the wizard can't even punch anyone. I mean, I, you know, that's kind of an outside situation, but. Well, well, right. And if, if you happen to have a spell that conjured a weapon, um, let's call it Mordenkind and sword or black bladed disaster to just cite one that I'm fairly sure is in second ed and one that I'm absolutely sure is second is in second ed. Are those weapons? If not, why not? Right. Well, that's why I said the thing about you know the definition of weapon is very narrow, and a magical weapon does not does not fall into that. Right? It's not. Uh, yeah, it's a question. Um, anyway, um, if you can approach this section thinking of it as uh, this would be an interesting thing about my character, and not uh, I need to go grub for points, then it's pretty fun. Um, at least to my eyes, once you're grubbing for points here. Um, the narrative is just really lost in a hurry, and that is a shame because it's trying to do interesting narrative stuff in its own way. Um, but I mean, it's so overpowered. Like um, the the ten point version of 
uh, the, the 10 and 15 point versions of Dispel. I'm sorry, you have Dispel Magic at first level. Okay. Can we talk about that? Uh, it, it would sort of be my take, at least now looking back at it, and I'm fairly sure it would have been my take at the time, because that's that's powerful mojo in uh, second edition. But yeah, there's, there's a lot of different things that you can be, and a lot of different ways that wizards can be. And uh, if you were approaching it as a, a very, very wizard-heavy campaign, then this would be fascinating to see like all the different infinite diversity and infinite combinations that spilled out of it for who wizards are. Well, that's what I was I was going to say, that this book, it goes very uh, – it provides these very um, sort of relatively detailed explanations of the different schools of magic, right? The s- schools of philosophy. So you've got your general abjuration, things like divination, necromancy, you know, illusion. And then you've got s- schools of effect. So you've got air, earth, fire, water, dimensions. You've got schools of thaumaturgy. So you've got artifice, alchemy, geometry, you know, like, uh, you know, and, and then there's the universal schools. I mean, so you, you've got these I- ideas where, you know, you can produce a party with you know five different wizards that are all very very different you can have a necromancer an elementalist you can have a shadow mage you can have a mentalist you know you can have a force mage and and all of those would create a a sort of interesting mix does a really good job of uh, pointing out the differences between those individuals even though they're all magic wielders they are very different and so I respect it for that. I like it for that, but I agree with the the basis of what you were saying. Yeah, um, and and honestly, like that's interesting enough that I think I'm ready to see D and D try something like that again. Um, it, you know, try a supplement that is consciously saying uh, everyone is you know doing some arcane magic, even if they're also doing other stuff. Um, you know taking a bit of a page from the uh, third ed gestalt rules. Um, but but also what I want to say is that a lot of the uh, more unusual ideas in, in this book, such as the kinds of specialists that you can have, uh, since uh, I think this is the first time we see elementalist, dimensionalist, force mage, mentalist, and shadow mage as statements, a lot of these are going to keep circulating uh, and, uh, and percolating through D&D down through the editions. Um, Shadow Mage especially springs to mind um, from the very late 3.5 Tome of Magic and uh, Heroes of Shadow kind of stuff. I, I, I do want to um, come back to something, and that is that you know, so you said it, you think D and D might be ready for this sort of thing again, but here's my issue with that. In fifth edition, almost every single class has arcane casting ability. Yep. And the and and the ones that don't, a lot of them have divine magic casting ability. So there are only a couple of classes that do not have the ability to wield arcane powers. So you know that I, I'm not making a judgment or statement about the the goodness or badness of that, but it greatly hobbles the appropriateness of a book like this because back back when this was produced, n- not everyone had the ability to use magic just whenever they wanted. 
Uh, for sure. For sure. And and I'm not sort of suggesting that you can't play a single class campaign or a campaign with any other kind of constraint. I mean more that I want to see uh, a, a product that consciously explores it and, and it sort of leans into it as maybe it's a micro setting. Um, maybe it's a, a a very narrow campaign concept, but one that you know, the product talks about how to explore, and the DMs Guild is here for this. It doesn't have to be from, um, you know, the uh, the hand of uh, Chris Perkins himself to be valid. I'm just saying. So, so right. I, I would just. I think there's some some interesting stuff bouncing around yeah, here. Yeah, I, I agree. But I, I guess my point is, like, for me, is there really room for this? Because there already is spellcasting ability for every class almost and and to me that's sort of what this um, book brings is for second edition this book brought the ability to have more than one spellcaster as a major party member and it separated what they could do and what kind of powers and abilities they had which is what well it sort of did well sort of right but i mean at the time it did Right in a, in a in a way that came from from TSR. Right, it came from the actual creators right. of the game. What it doesn't do is break them out of their uh, their combat role. Mm-hmm. They're they're going to be either uh, damage focused or control focused or utility focused, but they're not going to be a party defender. They're not going to be a party healer. Uh, they're probably not bringing a lot to the table in terms of buffs. Um, it, no more than any other wizard. Like, there's a very constrained concept of what a wizard can be on that level, and that's kind of what I'm getting at. Um, anyway, that's that's sort of all neither here nor there in terms of talking about this book. Um, but um, I, I, I still like to see them explore. Yeah, is what I'm yeah. Saying. I mean, I'm all for exploration. I'm I, I'm not actually saying you're wrong. I'm just saying I I it's very different. It's just very different. You know, the the, the need for different magical niches or or different magical abilities in fifth edition is a very different need than it was in second edition. That's definitely true. So, um, and you know. Someday when I write the history of the wizard class in D&D for Tribality... Um, You're going to get stuck on this I'm particular gonna, book. <laughs> I, I'm going to be almost copying this chapter word yeah. for word when you get into, here's each kind of specialization and the special things they get. Oh, mercy. Because they're all presented in uh, in paragraph form. Nothing is broken out into bullet points for presentation. And the only thing in tables is what the, uh, the 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 requirements or whatever, yeah. The you have to be a certain race, a certain ability, yeah. That's it. Everything else is long form paragraph. Yeah, it's it's incredibly punishing to try to extract meaning from it, <laughs> and it's okay. It's just a lot of things about information presentation have changed since the late nineties in books, and you know. I think it's commonly agreed that uh, layout and information presentation books uh, still isn't there, but 
this one's a doozy. Um, also, it 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 does that. It does that somehow very necessary thing of making you purchase other books to be fully usable. For example, on um, page 23, for those of you following along at home, the bottom of the right-hand column says, Wild Surge, talking about wild magic, right? Wild surges are strange manifestations of the randomness of wild magic. A complete table for wild surges appears in the Tome of Magic, the actual book, Tome of Magic. But if a copy of that book isn't available, use the random chart for the Wand of Wonder in the magical item description of the Dungeon Master's Guide. Note that a number of wild magic spells appear in the Tome of Magic and the Wizard Spell Compendium. If you're really interested in playing a wild mage, you should obtain one or both of those accessories. You know, uh, and also the you know, if not, then you need to get the DMG and look at the you know Wand of Wonder, right. <laughs> like <laughs> which tells you a little bit about the Wand of Wonder. But that's a digression. Right. Um, and you know, in fairness to Second Edition. Um, I recall my perspective at the time as really being okay. The Tome of Magic is the fourth core book. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, because it was one of the early releases, and uh, certainly from from this remove, um, it is hard to remember that some of those spells weren't straight up core. Um, interestingly, this this chapter ends with a you know half page on dealing with game breaking characters. And it's like they knew that a point by system had some issues. Yes. Point limits. The DM can limit the number of additional powers purchased by a wizard by setting a limit of 60 or 70 points of optional abilities. Cool. All right. I guess we know what the score is. Right. Limitations with a vengeance. A player may think he's getting away with something when he takes a couple of uh, a couple of beliefs or of environmental condition limitations, but a good DM can always find a way to bring these role-playing disadvantages into play. But let me point out that that takes a certain table culture. Absolutely. Um, and, and that there's a particular phrasing of advice that Mm-hmm. Uh, gets under my skin like almost nothing else. Right. Uh, the the phrasing, but a good DM can always find a way. Mm. So if I'm having a problem, it's because I'm not not a good enough DM, and that is the universal answer for all problems while being a DM. Cool, thanks. That is, I have heard that in far too many arguments. Yeah. Well, and then there's this, Jim. By looking for situations where the super character's built-in weaknesses cripple him, the DM can graphically illustrate how out of balance the character actually is. In other words, you're you know you're not even condoning, but promoting the idea that the DM, if they're a good DM, is going to strategically gimp a particular PC just to prove a point. Yeah. At some point during the campaign. And that's why I say it takes a certain type of table culture. And unfortunately, that was very common. Um, I'm I'm not appending that sentence with and also very fun because usually it wasn't. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, nobody wants their character to be gimped. If you spent an hour and a half setting this up so that your point by special wizard is totally rocking your socks. Then you and work the really fast. Thing. And well, I'm, I was just throwing out numbers, right? But I'm just saying, right? You spend a lot of time on it. You don't want to just be gimped because the DM feels like they need to pay you back, right? Right? 
it's yeah right like it is it, so for the most part the second edition trended away from the like it, the, the gm as the the holder of the stick um for the table dynamic and it's disheartening to see it come back with such a, a vengeance here um we've talked about it a lot in Gygax's text and uh, you know, it, it hasn't it hasn't gone anywhere in the the conversation about gaming. Uh, go to the the massive five uh, E Facebook group, and you'll see what I mean. So that's what I was going to say. In some ways, they have to address it. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, here here's the next thing. Oh, the bad guys are supermen too. Naturally, if one character is a walking arsenal of powers and abilities, it stands to reason that some NPCs might have similar skills. No matter how tough a particular PC is, there's always someone in the game world who's a little tougher. And meeting that NPC is a super character's worst nightmare. While this tactic isn't particularly elegant, it's quite effective in letting the player know just how it feels to be in the place of the poor NPCs his character has been terrorizing. So, you know, first of all, that assumes that the character is going to be terrorizing every NPC, which may or may not be true. But also, it tells the DM once again, get revenge on that PC. Show them how small they actually are by making the world you know, have several layers of hierarchy that are always allows for one to be more powerful than the PCs, which I suppose is a way of looking at the structure of a campaign. But as it says, it's not particularly elegant. So anything else about Wizards? I mean, let's let's be honest, you and I could talk about this chapter for like four hours. Oh, for sure. And I think that's, I think it covers it to our listener satisfaction, at least. Um, I mean, if you had a favorite uh, weird uh, optional ability or optional limitation, that would maybe uh, round us out nicely. Um, I mean, a favorite? Uh, not really, to be honest. I, I do. I what I really like about the chapter is the way that it describes the different schools in the beginning, um, because I I think it's a it's a really nice way to just show the the range of what you could get if you specialize. You know that what you could focus on if you specialize, and um, you know for for a long time, you know the wizard quote wizard or mage was just you know that's just a bucket full of magic, right? And instead of a specialist of any type, so I do like that. I don't particularly have a favorite one though, not really. Okay, so so as a category, my favorite are the different uh, abilities that let you sort of pseudo multiclass into grabbing some features from another class because uh, it, it plays like a subclass, right? It, you are now a, a, a functional subclass of wizard and you are you know, operative in a wider range of circumstances. So you've got thief ability, um, weapon selection, priestly wizard, uh, that kind of thing. I think that's neat. Um, so I, I do, I do, I do actually have a favorite. I changed my mind. All right, my, All right, my favorite is the geometer, but we already talked about it in skills and power. Okay. But yeah. here's the thing: I love the idea of it more than I love the implementation because I think sure. it's it's the idea of it is really awesome. And if I was going to be a PC, I'd have to put a lot of role playing into you know how I'm drawing the symbols and this, that, and the other crap. Um, but the actual implementation isn't really all that special. So. Eh. You know, like it doesn't really evoke that. That's left for the 
for the player to to role play. Right, and it sort of comes across as just a a more different abjurer. Right. So right. Yeah. It's fine. Exactly. Yeah. So whatever. Um, yeah. Okay, so you want to move on to the priests? Yeah, I think we, I think so, we can do that. Chapter uh, two. Chapter two, priests. It does a similar uh, treatment on priests, except instead of having schools, of course, it has spheres of access. Uh, and spheres of access are the the clear precursor to third ed domains, and those are in turn a fairly muddled precursor <laughs> to uh, fourth ed builds and sure. fifth ed domains. Right. Uh, things have changed around a lot in terms of how different a a priest is based on uh, who they serve or right. what their deal is. So remember also priests aren't just clerics. They're clerics, crusaders, druids, monks, and what's the last one? Oh, shamans. Right. Sure. So it, it's remember priest is a category in second edition. It's not a class. It's a it's a parent class. Yeah, it's a right? Parent class. And I mean the idea of um, looking at all these spheres and then jumping into monk is sort of right. Wait, but what? Right. Well, um, because the spheres include um, elemental spheres, so air, earth, fire, water. Right. Guardian spheres, which could be you know, related to monks. And so, you know, protection thought would be a sphere, you know, for monks possibly or wards. I mean, that's the thing, right? Uh, It becomes, these spheres are broad. Some of them are so broad that you end up being able to subsume the monk under it, I suppose. Uh, yeah. Um, they have uh, monks enjoy major access to the spheres of all divination, guardian, numbers, and thought. Yeah. That is super weird. Like because numbers and thought are yeah. way out there in function. Right? They're not. They're not bad or uninteresting. Just this is not a monk that is going to play all that much like a first edition monk. Well, um, the the reason numbers I think is 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 because of the idea of its connection to the universe. Right? Numbers being part of the nature of the universe right when you look when when you look at the definition of numbers it says uh it says priests with access to this sphere believe that numbers and mathematical relationships can provide insight into the nature of the universe right i I can see the arguments for those spheres i'm more thinking of the fact that the first edition monk isn't a spellcaster oh well of course yes i mean that's already like at all yes for sure um and so this is just a very different place well the the idea is they're getting their sort of uh divine spell casting power from their from their you know it, it's almost like uh uh the monk in this case is a like more of a uh sort of tibetan buddhist that finds themselves trying to be one with the universe and therefore that gives them a supernatural power Right, more so. I mean, I yeah, I, I I'm like you. I, that that for sure. But since it's in the book, I'm, that's why I'm talking about it. Right. I mean, I, I in terms of its inclusion, yes, I'm I'm circumspect, of course. But but it's interesting to to have uh, the the crusader, the monk, and the shaman in this book at all because um, they're not really well presented like, at all anywhere else. There there is a monk in. Um, faiths and avatars, uh, 
uh, the Forgotten Realms supplement. Um, and it is, I think, fairly related to this one. I don't recall if it's the same as this one, but um, I think Crusader is also in that book. So, so in a substantial portion, this book is drawing off of uh, Faith and Avatars or vice versa. I, I don't remember which way that flows because I haven't looked at the publication dates. So anyway, we have we have the cleric, which is the uh, the same cleric as you'd expect, and there's a bunch of different ways to build a cleric based on sphere access, but that only changes spell access. It doesn't alter any of the other features. Uh, that spell access is your, your primary feature anyway. Uh, then you have the crusader, uh, which is very, very close to being a, a paladin in concept, but um, with a, a much wider range of alignment possibilities. Uh, you have to be either lawful or chaotic in alignment. Um, so you can be anything except neutral, evil, neutral, good, or true neutral. Why? Uh, who knows? Anyway. Um, <laughs> yeah, they they started to get a thing about uh, true neutrality being bad. Yeah, it's it's just not sort of explained um, why a, a neutral good character would not be a crusader for good. Anyway, um, the Crusaders uh, advance in uh, Thaco like a warrior rather than like a priest, and so that's that's one of their main things. Um, they are very they, they skew very close to being warriors. Um, at the same time, still have a a fair amount of sort of cleric DNA going on. Um, Druid is unchanged. Druid is exactly what you'd expect it to be based on second ed. Uh, we've already talked about monk and then um, shaman is man, a whole, whole mess of problematic uh, language just right there in the first paragraph. And um, the first paragraph, heck the first sentence. <laughs> it, yeah. Yeah. Like if you just wanted to, uh, make a super problematic cleric, this is how you do it. Um, so anyway, I, I'm not going to go into depth on that one because I think we can pretty much give it a miss. But it is multiple pages of content because of how they work. They, they're they a little bit the, um, the Shair of the priest side where they have spirits that do all of their oh I had all of their heavy lifting like that yeah, uh, yeah you're right huh. but it, it's a little it, it's not it's not exactly that it's it's a thing um, uh, digging into this in in detail would certainly be a lifestyle choice that I don't think we should make yeah I mean you know um, it is what it is um, you know it it's an unfortunate artifact. Uh, I I would hope that if something that was trying to do the same thing that this shaman sort of underclass did, if something were to be produced now that tried to do the same thing as this, I would hope that it would not have as many basically offensive <laughs> items in it. Yeah, you'd hope. Um, yeah, it's it's extremely problematic. 
So yeah, we don't have to talk about it. Um, I mean, I, you know, I, I, I'm I, not to excuse it. It is definitely a product of its time. I, I don't say that as an excuse, just as a fact. Um, but yeah, reading it now with 2019 eyes, it's like, oh, shake yeah. my head every third yeah. sentence. Um, so we get next the optional abilities. And um, if anything, there are more of these than there were for wizards. It's it's a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah. Well, because the priest gets what, like hundred point or hundred? What is it? Uh, hundred twenty, hundred twenty points. Yeah, because they've got to buy every sphere individually, right? So exactly. you have the option to, you know, chop a bunch of spheres and you get a bunch of other stuff instead. Which, I mean, uh, again, is a fairly interesting approach if right you keep your eyes on the narrative. Um, much like I said with a wizard, um, it is very easy to see how you could hang a whole campaign on wall-to-wall priests sure. and not yeah. really have significant overlap. Right. right. Yeah. Like you could stay with clerics and not have significant overlap because uh, of the point, because by. of the point by, because there's yeah. so many different ways to go here. You can have a very caster side uh, cleric. You can have, you know, a, well, I do some healing one way and I also do some healing a different way. By the way, did I mention <laughs> that I heal? Um, right. So you can pretty much play the green bond from Monty Cook's Arcana Evolved, um, which was a, a major uh, running joke slash gripe in the <laughs> Arcana Evolved game that I played. Um, so so th- there's a lot here, and it's um, it's compelling in its ways. Uh, but again, once you introduce the op- optional limitations, especially it's really hard to not just sit there and sort of um, dicker over points and lose sight of like, I'm trying to shape a character that is going to be a, a compelling figure in the world. Um, Well, and let's be honest, some of these limitations are going to make that character unplayable, right? Or can be totally ignored. And unless the DM is really on it, then you you get free points. Yeah, and and having to know each character at the table in that kind of uh, nuance just to keep the game balanced is sort of the, the untold story of the serious problem here. Right. Like I I think that Fifth Ed has shown us that asking the GMs to know all of a uh, particular players uh, traits ideals bonds and flaws in enough detail to trigger them is just not working out right what if you had twice as many and each character's fundamental game balance relied on them still good right so, uh, still good well it's it it that's that's similar to uh well let's ask every fourth edition dm to know every single power and what exactly it does for every single character at the table not going to happen I, I would I would argue that the fourth edition situation is less needed. Well, no, no, I've, because the player can can explain it to sure. you again, and it will probably sure. be okay. Yeah, but I, I'm just saying, as an ideal, if you expect your DM to know every single in and out of every single character that's from every player that's sitting at the table, it's just not going to happen, no matter what edition we're in. Yeah. You know, I mean, heck, I I run games and and I I also you know it's one of the reasons I try to be a player, right? So I I play in a game, 
And heck, I'm going through and like, oh, I didn't realize, you know, this particular thing that I've had a player in my game that I'm running has been doing, you know, they've been doing it wrong this whole time, right? Yeah. Uh, not not so much to the detriment that it's ruined a campaign or something, but it, that's a very common thing because my goal as the DM is not to go around and memorize every single person's, you know, as you said, ideals, bonds, flaws, traits, plus all their powers and how they work, plus all the rules. I mean, it's just not it's not possible. I would spend all of my time prepping just learning the mechanics, and I wouldn't run a very good game because of it. So. The same thing was true for me in second edition. The same thing was true for me in fourth edition. I mean, it's just the way it is. Yep. Now that's a certain point of view. I'm I'm well aware that's my own point of view, and that's the way I run things. And I'm loose enough as a DM that you know what? If my player screws up, as long as they're not specifically trying to you know fake out me or the other players or game the system you know, in a way that's extremely detrimental on purpose, then what do I care? Like I just want us all to have fun, but you know, here's here's the thing. In this particular system, in this book, during second edition, to make these limitations meaningful, then the DM had to pay attention. Yep, I, I certainly agree with that. Um, and, you know, it, it isn't like the DM doesn't already have plenty of cognitive load. Right. I mean, second ed, second ed was not as bad about cognitive load as third could be. Sure. Because even just understanding your monster's abilities was so taxing in um, even early mid game third. Anyway, um, that's, that's neither here nor there. I think we can probably move on to chapter three. Do you think? Sure. Yeah. There, you know, chapters one and two kind of mirror each other, but one for the wizard group and one for the priest group. And I have basically the same complaints about the priest group that I have about the wizard group. And, you know, there you go. That's super fair. Yeah. So that brings us to chapter three. Um, which covers other spellcasters, and they don't get the kind of deep dive detail that um, wizards and priests did, but that's not the most surprising thing for a book like this. Um, Though in fairness, bards are very close to being full-fledged casters in second, so I'm I'm a little surprised to not see a bit more here. Yeah, they get, what, a page? Page and a quarter, maybe? Right, yeah. and they have the option of school specialization, that kind of thing. That's that's all very cool, and they also have a few new options that are just intended to be tacked on to uh, skills and powers for uh, paladins and rangers. And then there's some business about multi-class spellcasters and uh, how all that should go. Right, um, I, multi-classing is. Uh, Messy on the best of days. Sure. But once you are... Once you're talking about buying abilities yeah. and limitations. Pfft. Right. And, yeah. and it gets it just gets so convoluted if you have the individually bought features in a point-buy system for each of two or three different classes. Right. And you've got to resolve all those against each other. <laughs> um, so this is trying to provide some guidance and support for that. But um, it's daunting. Yeah, and it's it gets it's just muddy, you know. It's 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 just muddy. Um, and then there's a section on monsters and monstrous spellcasters uh, versus monsters with spell-like abilities. Um, uh, SLAs, man. Yeah. The the, <laughs> the utter weirdness of 
uh, third ed monster design that that is SLAs kills me. I mean, whatever. Uh, yeah, there's not. Um, I mean, whatever. It's a decent section. It's it's. There's nothing sure. uh, from the modern eye looking back. There's nothing like, wow, oh my god, you know, about this. Uh, yeah. about this section. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I only mention third ed because I'm I'm still twitchy about it. Um, <laughs> like, yeah. uh, look, I, I have my trauma. Okay, it it got weird and complicated to talk about stuff. Yeah. In, in um, monster design, because of that set of words, here they mean the same thing, but the uh, design nuance hasn't drilled down to anything like that level. Uh, but it's worth noting, for example, all spell-like abilities have an initiative modifier of plus three, right, or fast under player's option combat and tactics rules. So that's a that's a dominating advantage if it's a spell that would otherwise be slow. So that's that's a whole thing. Um, but ultimately it's a very short chapter on other kinds of spellcasters just to make sure they cover their bases. Right. It's, it's, it's the catch all of the, the few little optional abilities that, that might be provided that, that tweaks somebody's interest if they're playing a bard or a paladin. It's not really. And the one really good thing that they, they do here is to, discuss the types of specialist uh, wizards and specialist priests that you can be well multiclassed. For our listeners who don't have a lot of experience with uh, second ed multiclassing, it's important to understand that uh, every legal multiclassing combination for a given race was listed on a table. And if it wasn't listed, you couldn't do it. It's extremely restrained and there's a, there's an, an idea that it's supporting some kind of core story about mm-hmm. who, you know, who these races are and what they do and if you can figure out what that story is from that table you're doing a lot better than i am yeah it, it's what's one of those issues of enforced racial diversity or yeah yeah or, or something like it yeah right. it, it, it's it's an odd uh, artifact of uh having multiple different types of species maybe is a better word. Um, Right. Well, and part of it is that they're trying to sell the idea that half elves are some of the best multiclassers out there. They have more multiclassing options than uh, anyone else, you know, even in the running. And I mean, that's interesting. Right. Um, For example, gnomes cannot be crusaders, but half elves. Right. You know they can, right? So presumably that the psyche of the gnomish people does not allow them to fall t- more toward fanaticism and become a crusader. Uh, if if they specialize in magic, they tend to be specialized in magic, whether it's divine or arcane, not in weapons and magic, which would be what a crusader would be. Like, but right. <laughs> okay, whatever. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right? These specialties are supposed to cost you character points. Uh, however, if the DM agrees, a limited number of additional specialties may be available to the multi-class character. Selecting one of these optional specializations costs a multi-class character 20 character points. Yeah. Or an experience point penalty of 20% for standard characters. Cool. Great. Yeah, thanks, guys. And, mm, just just the whole second ed, well, f- yeah. first and second ed treatment of uh, non-human PC races is such a cluster. 
Well, and let's be honest too. Theoretically, I could create a character that had limitations that were all experience point based and end up getting only 50% experience no matter what. God. Pass. <laughs> <You> <laughs> right. Yeah. But I you know what I'm saying? Like it's you know, it's not a small thing to say, well, you you're the penalty of 20% experience. Like, uh, really? Yeah. Uh, so um, anyway, I think that brings us to the end of this this chapter. Yeah, and to chapter three. Therefore, this episode. I agree. So join us next time for proficiencies and equipment, and a delve into the magic. Anyway, Brandis, where can people find you on the internet? My blog, Harbinger of Doom, is at brandisstoddard.com. I. Also, I'm on Twitter at Brandis Stoddard, and I write for Tribality.com. Excellent. And I am Sam Dillon, and you can find me on Twitter at DM Samuel. And you can find me on Twitch on the Don't Split the Podcast Network, or you can send an email to dndbrief at gmail.com, and I'll answer your questions. Um, and otherwise, I think that's it for this episode. Look, mate. Three generations ago, my ancestors forged the Great Blade Skull Splitter. With it, they won the Goblin Wars, the Hobgoblin Wars, the Orc Wars, the Demon Wars, the Elf Wars, and the Gelatinous Cube Wars. And that one doesn't even make sense, because they don't have skulls. Now, all these years later, the legend of the Great Skull Splitter grows. Offering dice to help you create your own legends, Skull Splitter Dice makes the highest quality dice beautiful dice of both plastic and metal. Want to roll bones that look like bones? Or just something with enough heft to split the skulls of your enemies? Skull Splitter Dice has that and more. Check them out now at SkullSplitterDice.com slash Tomeshow and use the coupon code Tomeshow with all little letters and get 15% off. Now get out there, split some skulls, and build some legends.